Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Cloud Wars Live. This is the podcast where we're talking about the digital revolution and the remarkable things happening in our world today from all sorts of different angles. It's always a pleasure to have as one of our monthly guests, Tony Uphoff, who's the CEO of Thomas, which sits in between millions of industrial suppliers, buyers, sellers, and has a huge amount of data that talks about or describes what's going on in the industrial and manufacturing markets. Tony, great to have you back. Hey, Bob, thanks so much. It's always great to be on the show. Yeah, and Tony, you know, we've talked about it some before, but again, I, I think uh, it's it's been so interesting in the last couple of years watching as people think about this notion of industrial, right? Like I live in Pittsburgh and you think of those big stacks with dirty crap belching out of them. But I love that point you made uh, last episode. I think, what is it? Seven thousand manufacturers in New York City doing eight billion dollars in business. Is that crazy, Bob? It's actually eight thousand, eight thousand <laughs> companies. And obviously, if you run the math on this, and it's it's you know a, a remarkable amount of revenue. It's about seven and three quarters billion dollars a year. It's funny. After I I gave that stat on your show, ITAC, which is the the um, nonprofit group that works with New York uh, uh, City-based manufacturers gave a big shout out to both uh, both of us and Cloud Wars Live on, on social media. But it is a, a, a dynamic about the industry. And I think there's so many of the components and pieces where, you know, you remember how we used to think of certain aspects of finance or even financial services like Wall Street. You go back many years ago, it was kind of in the background. You didn't pay that close of attention to it. And then until you suddenly woke up one day and realized, oh, this controls the economy we live in. And it became not back office interest, but front office interest. I think we're watching a very interesting dynamic of an era where manufacturing is not only booming and growing and vibrant here in the United States, but I think a lot of us, I'm certainly connected to the industry, but a lot of us are waking up and realizing oh, wait a minute, this isn't something that just happens in a far off land or it isn't something that I'm really removed from. We, we can feel it and see it, whether that's because we're intrigued and we want to be in it as an industry, we work in it, or it affects our daily life in, in perhaps more ways than we realize. Yeah, yeah, Tony, one small uh, point I'd make on this, and I'll just, I'll show you this. It's just a tripod that I've been playing with and... Um, you know, it's uh, somebody could say, oh, that's 10 years old. It might be, but I'm telling you, that thing can bend in every direction. It does what a tripod does, but it's different. It's made for a different age. It's made for when, you know, you've got millions, probably tens of millions. I don't know, maybe it's hundreds of millions of people making videos. So this new maker, creator, builder, tinker, put together uh enterprise all across the world it's it's pretty remarkable and that's triggering you know new things like that yeah and and bob to your point you know one of my favorite stories about thomasnet.com usage and and i i should should remember this woman's name um but the the woman that created the now you know billion dollar brand called spanx and it's a women's undergarment company when she wanted to source the, the components, there were some, some uh, made to spec metal components that she wanted to design into this. And she was pretty savvy about design and had at least a functional understanding of some of the engineering requirements. And she actually sourced the uh, manufa initial manufacturer on thomasnet.com. And, and I think to your point of kind of 
makers, creators, you know, we, we tend to think of manufacturing or the industrial markets as these big lumbering smokestack, you know, General Electric and, you know, these, these, you know, Siemens and these big, big companies and the auto companies and the like. And it is certainly that, but an enormous amount of the components are developed or built uh, or the value created by smaller to medium-sized companies. And, a, and a, to your point of a quote unquote simple thing like a tripod that's found new life in the era of everybody's a producer, everybody's a, you know, a creator. Um, you know, that, that's probably something that had zero movement in its, in its demand until about five or six years ago. And then all of a sudden, you know, here's this kind of dormant product line, let's say, or usage, you know, a tripod for a camera that had a pretty predictable kind of level of demand that suddenly now everybody wants one of those. Yeah. And then you think about the young people today and Tony, I find that young people applies to a very, very broad swath of, uh, of humanity right now for relative to me. So I'm going to say young people under the age of 20, I'd say even under the age of 15 or 16, they're going to grow up, you know, like you've all heard about the digital grow up digital generation, but these people are going to grow up thinking that anything you want to make physically make or manufacture, create like that, it's going to be pretty possible, right? From additive manufacturing to sourcing of the types that you talked about, and this access to data, to sourcing of materials, right? If you can think of it, it can be drowsing, you know, a couple hours, or you can print it. Um, so this, this boom that's coming, I mean, as strong as it is now, I think we're just seeing the beginning of that, right? Uh, and Tony, I know one of the things that you want to ask about a little bit today is, will that be one of the things that maybe uh, causes a rethink about the whole notion of supply chains and the significance yeah. of where does this stuff magically come from that we think about, push a button, yeah. it appears at our door? Well, if you think about it, Bob, you go back through history of, of moments in time where there was um, you know, a, a, a significant shift or transformative moment. There was a, a market transition, right? So as you were talking and describing some of that kind of stuff about you know, what perhaps somebody you know, of a certain age today Will, will looking forward not be limited by the imaginations that perhaps you and I and others have given the limits to things that we grew up with. I, I was reading a, a fascinating book recently called Dreaming the Beatles. And it, and it was about the rock band, the Beatles and kind of the influence they had and unpacked how they got together in the songs. And you know, most of this story, we've all heard it. But what hit me as I was um, reading the book is the Beatles came around at a time when television was accelerating and at the advent of the portable radio. So radio had been around a long time, but the idea that I could take what normally sits in a big box in my living room that my mom and dad and grandparents were listening to and all that kind of stuff. And if I wanted to rock out listening to that thing, I probably wasn't gonna do it in the living room. To now suddenly I could take this little device into my bedroom and I could rock out to this band called the Beatles, right? So that cultural transformation, right, was not just the fact that this band came along. It was the fact that these two technologies were liberating our ability to do things with that. And it also opened the door where a lot of other people said, hey, you know what, I'm gonna grow my hair and I wanna get a guitar, okay. you know? And it, and it, you know, it, it, it made that accessible. I think what's, what's fascinating and relating that a little bit to the era we're living in now, Bob, in the supply chain. So it, it hit me a couple of months ago where 
you know, we were getting together with some friends and, and uh, the, the, uh, one of the friends around the table is involved in the financial services industry at a fintech company. Smart guy, you know, certainly not into manufacturing, not into a lot of the markets that I operate in, but kind of out of nowhere, he steers the conversation into problems in quote unquote, the supply chain. And, you know, we're driving home afterwards and my wife turned to me and said, you know, isn't it kind of interesting that supply chain has now become a mainstream topic because as she reflected, she brings it up regularly. I hear about this from everybody and it's not because they know I'm in a, let me call it, you know, directly related business. It's, we're all painfully aware either positively or negatively about the supply chain today. And so put it together with the generational point you made, Bob, so for the first time in history, whether you want to call millennials or the combination of Gen X, millennials and Gen Z consumers who have grown up in an environment where I want a pint of you know, ice cream and I'm going to hit a button and it's going to arrive. I want the latest iPad and I'm going to hit a button and it's going to arrive. I want whatever the heck it is and I'm going to get it. I want a Peloton. I want this. I want that. And all these things arrive. For the first time in history, that generation is being hit with product shortages mm -hmm. and problems of supply chain disruption and ships backed up in harbors. And, you know, the, the famous last mile, well, hey, it's all well and good, but if I can't get it, you know, digital technology can't outrun manufacturing and distribution. And I think it's a fascinating time that we're living in where the average person, right? If, if, if cocktail parties were a thing again, <laughs> hopefully someday soon, um, yeah. and you were standing there, you'd hear this murmur of supply chain problems being spoken by people who five years ago probably thought a supply chain was people in a bucket brigade helping to put out a fire. You know, They wouldn't have really understood it. And, and so we study this and, and we're endlessly looking at our data. And if you look at the surges in demand they can oftentimes reflect categories where scarcity is grow going up, right? So, you know, uh, raw materials, finished components, requirements for manufacturing components or whatever it might be. So when we put these two things together, we've been kind of monitoring supply chain disruptions. But what we're also trying to do, Bob, is to see if we can't kind of better understand kind of, okay, What's going to happen with this? And can we make some predictions that might be helpful for the industry? Perhaps not um, enjoyable for consumers to hear. Uh, because again, going back to the earlier point, you know, we're all so used to, I just hit the button and it's going to turn up on my doorstep pretty soon. And, and that even includes a car for gosh sakes. Well, now suddenly we're hitting some constraints against that. A, primarily because demand has gone up so dramatically. But B, you know, you can't outrun. You know, we've overwhelmed the system. You can't outrun manufacturing, and you can't outrun the you know global shipping and logistics. You know, while we may order and engage with digitally, the reality of these these are physical products and goods, including food, right? And so that that component piece of it, getting it manufactured and organized and in the hands of the consumer, is is if anything probably as complex as it's ever been, Bob. And I would argue in this era of increased demand and some supply chain disruptions, we're, we're going we're gonna to be working through some, some, uh, some frustrating, I wouldn't say challenging, but frustrating times in certain product categories. 
Yeah, and Tony, we're, I imagine a lot of those uh, people who have now made the supply chain discussion a uh, cocktail party topic, you know, might be about cars. I can't get a car because they can't get the electronics components in it, right? Now, when in the world, you know, would somebody have thought that if anything is going to hold up, it'd be labor strike, it would be materials, it would be you know, something, but not uh, an electronic shortage yet. You know, there it well, is. It, it, and Bob, to your point, this is no this is no joke, right? You're talking about major corporations, General Motors, Ford, Nissan, Tesla, BMW, and, and Daimler. Most people know of as Mercedes-Benz, right? Those companies are really, in some cases, they're slowing or shutting down temporarily factories because they can't get PCBs printed circuit boards. Now you would think to yourself, you know, and it's it become, you know, it, it, it's not such a, a, an aha moment when someone like me says, hey, cars are simply rolling computers. I think most people know that today, but you don't stop and therefore say, oh, okay, if that is factually accurate, they're rolling computers. There's a series of components that are critical to my, you know, purchase or lease of an automobile. And how does how does that work? Because if consumer electronics, you know, Apple keeps setting record quarters, consumer electronics is moving along. There are other industries that are competing for those PC. I mean, are, is it a limitless supply of that? And how about the raw materials that go into that? And so it's it's a really interesting dynamic to watch that play out. And just to give you a sense, the demand for printed circuit boards is up uh, as we speak, 105% year over year on thomasnet.com. And by the way, last year it was up uh, by over 100% as well. So this has been an ongoing, you know, kind of challenge and, and issue. We talked also, Bob, before on, on your program about housing, and you know, the perhaps to some people the irony that during a global pandemic the demand for housing actually went up; it didn't go down, as as many people might predict it. And part there's a lot of different reasons for that, not the least of which is people moving to perhaps a larger home or a different environment where they had more room. Well, the demand for lumber and some of the previous uh, you know, tariffs and some of the challenges around the lumber market came to roost. And what ended up happening is the average price of a home went up by about 25% simply based on the price of lumber. And even though many journalists are writing these stories about, yeah, look at lumber's declined in price by 65% so far this year, that doesn't mean it's back to what it was before the pandemic. It, it's still higher. So it means if you're buying a quote unquote new house today, or you have a home improvement project or any of those types of things, pound for pound, you're paying more. And again, this is a supply chain problem. You know, and, and in many cases, Bob, these are in categories where, you know, de demand is such a, um, I don't want to say fragile, it's the wrong way to phrase it. But if you think about you know, predicting the stock market. To a certain extent, you're predicting demand, right? And if you really knew how to predict demand, you'd predict stocks and you'd be a retired billionaire by now, right? So the reality of it is demand can be a very, we can see it. And we're fortunate enough to have a platform like ThomasNet where we can see the early signals of demand trends, but it's very tough to predict. If, if you look at the pandemic as a good example of that, in the previous decade, the volatility of demand for um, uh, PPE, uh, protective equipment, right? 
masks, gowns, surgical gloves, things like that. The volatility of that over the previous decade had maybe moved by 1% in any given year. And suddenly you have a year where it goes up by 6,000%. Nobody saw that coming. Nobody predicted that, but here we are. I think you're kind of, Bob, to a certain extent, your comment about cars is very similar. And so where am I going with this? When you pull this back to folks uh, in your audience uh, that are managing companies, whether they're offering technology into some of these types of companies or they're managing you know, producers of products and services, boy, talk about the requirement to be agile and, and to understand that, you know, that, that demand is going to either overwhelm you or underwhelm you. And, you know, being able to build, in some cases, Bob, redundant systems, second, tertiary suppliers to, to be more, much more innovative in thinking through, you know, supply chain. You know, the, the, the example I was given to a friend of mine that, that is not in this industry, but was kind of fascinated with the discussion is they said, every business has a supply chain, literally every business. And, you know, the restaurant you last ate in has a remarkably you know, complicated supply chain. So you've got a perishable good, as in, you know, could be fish, chicken, beef, whatever the, the, you know, produce. You've also got a very expensive, regulated, and difficult to transport good in liquor. And you've got to not only predict what the demand is going to be around for those types of things, but heaven forbid, you under or over predict because a lot of customers who have a bad experience in a restaurant aren't gonna come back the next night and go, hey, it was horrible last night, but I'm here again. I'm gonna give you another shot here, buddy. You know, I, I hope you give me some opportunity here. But uh, in any event, I, I just think it's a fascinating time. And um, I, I've got a few other industries, Bob, that I would, I hope I don't bum the listeners out, but you know, I, I, we would, based on our data, give some advice to consumers if you're, if you're delving into any of these types of industries right now. All right. All right, Tony, let's, let's talk about those just in one second here. I want to offer a word from our sponsor, BMC. BMC wants to know, is your business on its A game? That's when systems are intelligent by learning from markets, where automation is paramount yet effortless, and when technology and people work as one in an enterprise. The A-game is your business at its absolute best. BMC calls this the autonomous digital enterprise. Find out more at bmc.com slash A-game. So, uh, Tony, yeah, I would definitely like to hear about that, right? Um, I think people don't like surprises. Uh, we'd be happy to learn more about uh, some of these frustrations or challenges, whatever they are coming up. But I was, I was intrigued by what you said a minute or two ago about the, you know, the role that technology can play up to a point. And I think, Tony, one of the things that's coming around here is as technology moves ever more deeply and pervasively into organizations, deeper and deeper in there, I think we see this fascinating thing coming on with you know, broadly call it, you know, industry-specific solutions, vertical market solutions, or industry clouds. And the opportunity there for some of these technology companies in close concert with their customers to start to do things and create things that neither could ever have done on its own. And, and there's going to be a new model. I'm not saying this will override the physical limitations of uh, producing goods and materials that are then you know, uh, woven into the supply chain. But I do think that this is going to 
maybe help ameliorate it in some ways, predict some of these things, and maybe even give the intelligence to say, printed circuit boards, you know, Tony, as you call them, PCB. God, I, it had to be uh, 30 or 40 years ago when I first heard that term. Like, yeah. say, how hard is it to make these things? So uh, maybe some of these new interconnections between technology companies and their customers could offer some insight or some new ways of looking at those things to try to ward off these gotcha situations. Bob, Bob, I, you know, you and I have touched on this before. I, I, I think you are literally spot on. And I, I would give you a lot of credit as being early into calling out this idea of, you know, now it's common nomenclature, but, you know, vertical cloud and, you know, vertical go to market and stuff like that. And I think initially, when you were first talking about this, I could imagine some people saying, yeah, it's, it's kind of like a marketing plan. You know, I, I'm going to go to, I'm going to go after the manufacturing. And so what I'm going to do is hire a couple of folks that know that market and kind of know some folks and they speak the lingo and they know what a CNC machine is so they can kind of give good customer when they get in the door. And what you were really identifying is a step change in technology that is now enabling co-creation of value. And I know that sounds kind of buzzy, but it is spot on. You had a fantastic Cloud Wars Live minute um, about Oracle's step into the financial services industry that, that I, I think really nailed this. And I, I think you couldn't be more right. And I also think, as usual, you're very early. I, I think this is just beginning. A, because these enabling technologies are still relatively new. But if also you think about the idea of co-creating, you know, it, it, it doesn't happen overnight. It takes a little bit of understanding. There has to be some trust built in there so that I understand if you're a tech company and you're stepping in with me, are you stepping on me or are you stepping in with me and how are we gonna do this? I'll give you an interesting example that is very, very early in the manufacturing industry. So we've been talking about supply chain disruption for the first part of our conversation here. And you know what, the reality of it is, it's existed before, but I think what's happening is the velocity of all the things that are going on right now is exacerbating the, the, the challenge here. Well, if you think about supply, the, the physical supply chain of a lot of companies, what's starting to happen and where I think tech companies are gonna play a huge role in co-creation is we're starting to see the opportunity to bring together my physical supply chain, let me call it my digital supply chain and my financial supply chain and converge them. And I'll give you a good example of co-creation. Kind of quietly, Google has started to do some, that what they refer to, and this is not a new term, but they're applying it to a new area, of digital twinning of supply chain. Mm -hmm. So through, I believe they're doing this, Bob, through the, the um, uh, Google Cloud manufacturing vertical, I believe. Um, but they're starting to develop this idea of being able to create a digital twin of your supply chain mm -hmm. and enable you to start to do some very, very sophisticated modeling, including you know, war games, so I hate to call it that, but disruptive modeling. But also imagine how many companies right now, Bob, as you know, for all the different reasons, as reshoring absolutely booms. And for, for your listeners that haven't heard that term before, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's bringing, manufacturing closer local back to, to, uh, to the US or North America. And it's happening at a, at a remarkable pace. Well, how do you model that, right? So I've got an existing supply chain and it may be partly 
you know, here in the US, but it may also be partly in China, perhaps in Mexico, perhaps in, in uh, another country. How do I start to model that out? And how do I do it in a way that I'm not just flipping a switch and boy, I hope this works. And so I, I know just enough to be dangerous. I know what digital twinning is in the context of a digital twin to pardon me, a supply chain. I know this is a new area, but what a fascinating example, Bob, of your co-creation where I could imagine um, you know, uh, a, a digital twin supply chain as a service. And knowing the folks at Google, that's probably actually how they're going to market with it. And that's something that, boy, I'd love to, you know, provide to the mid-market to our customers because our customers would would love to have something like that. I think right now it's probably more of a Fortune 100 offering. You know, I, I would imagine a very large scale. Um, but I think that's a good example, Bob, to your point. And I, I just can't emphasize enough to your listeners how on you know, how, how salient your initial points were on this. This idea of vertical cloud is not a marketing strategy. And I think we've, we've just, we've completely missed the beat if we think that's what it is. This is the first steps towards co-creation and, and the co-creation of real tangible value. And, and I think um, it's, gonna, it's gonna hold huge opportunities for us in so many different markets, certainly in the one that's near and dear to my heart of manufacturing. Bob, you start to think of healthcare, and it's already started down that path. You start to think of some of these other marketplaces out there, and you know, you you had a piece recently on, uh, I think it was Snowflake's earnings, and I, I think there was some comment that you pulled out where data science is going to have a, a more positive impact on life sciences than perhaps life sciences itself. And I, I, I may be butchering your quote, but it really hit me as another great example of co-creation, Bob. Yeah, yeah, Tony, really, that's a, you've woven a lot of uh, fascinating threads together uh, beautifully there. To just to touch on that one thing with Snowflake, it was uh, the, the Snowflake CEO, Frank Slootman was saying he had recently been in a conversation with the chief science officer, not the chief data officer, the chief science officer at a pharmaceutical company. And that person, the chief science officer said, we're at a point now where, uh, and he said, hey, we've been a life sciences company for 50 or 60 years. We're at a point now where life sciences will continue to make a contribution toward wellness and personal health, but we think that data science will now have a bigger impact on human health than life sciences does. So he wasn't saying, you know, I can see a point in the future, the the impact of data science is rising. He has surpassed that of life sciences. Now, um, Tony, in there too, I I would think that maybe, you know, if somebody really dug into that, and uh, I'm not trying to play word games with what uh, Frank Slootman said, but in the absence of life sciences, you know, you could have all the data science in the world and you try to, you know, impact pharmaceutical industry, you, you can't do it. It is by marrying those things, by infusing life science with data science, enriching uh, each with the other where things come along. And I think that's why you you really described the whole thing about industry clouds, vertical market solutions, and the ultimate outcome of that, which is co-creation. I think yeah. quite, quite, uh, quite powerfully there, Tony, because, to me too, one of the things that comes up with this right away is this ongoing challenge that we've seen over the last few years, but especially in the last year and a half of leadership. 
right? You know, because there could be some leaders and, you know, you appropriately, you know, raise the flag. Hey, are you going to do this with me or are you going to do this, you know, at me or on yeah. me? Um, and of course that has to be there, but that those sort of knee jerk rags saying like, ah, that's not what we do. Ah, you know, let's, let's stick to our knitting and, you know, we'll stay in where we're doing. Those companies are going to get slaughtered because yeah. Uh, the the speed at which this stuff's happening. So, and just to uh, Tony, just briefly flesh out your point too that you made about the the piece the other day involving Oracle. So Larry Ellison, um, one of the reasons he's been, I would argue, what he'll be one thought of as one of the most successful people, uh, business people in you know American or global history, not the technology industry, but overall, is because he doesn't do things the way other people do them, and. One of the things that he's done with Oracle's always been, you know, very much a fierce independent. Um, this this thing until recently, in some ways, these notions of partnership is some, you know, it just wasn't of interest to them, right? We'll do it ourselves. Well, now he's begun in this earnings call last week to refer to Oracle customers as partners, not to be soft and fuzzy, because he said in the financial services sector, we're going to get into payment systems we're going to get into you know different ways of financing applications with our banking partners he said so for the banks it opens up a new future it gives them you know a, a, an opportunity to take all their incumbent power plus this technology partnership and have a little bit of uh, differentiation from what some of the fintechs are trying to do and maybe pull those fintechs up into it a three-legged partnership you could see some of that so, Tony, I just think that uh, I agree with you completely. I think this is going to be, perhaps in the whole tech industry, the most powerful and high impact trend of 2022. And to me, it's sort of the ultimate fulfillment of the cloud because the cloud provides the underpinnings to do this sort of partnership that, I mean, it could have been done in the old fashioned way, but it would have been so much more difficult, time consuming and uh you know lawyers and whose ip is this and whose is that so um some of that stuff would be around but i to me it just opens up an incredible incredible future for these businesses and in turn the beneficiaries this will be the customers or consumers of, of the companies that will have these new abilities you know bob if i look at it at, at the thomas business and thomasnet.com is a good example where you know this is a, a, a business been around for a long time, multiple generations, and you know through the years the company has attempted to do some partnerships with big name data companies. You, you know you and your listeners would know, and I inherited a few of those when I joined the company a few years ago, and inevitably you kind of find your you found yourself needing to unwind them because they were incredibly complicated. They were sort of legal agreements and. You had to build all this stuff and then showcase one partner and all this kind of stuff. Well, we, we kind of backed up, you know, really focused on our own technology and where we wanted to go. And today we're building API technology that the co-creation of value is really simple. You know, if, if it's a partner, fantastic. That partnership really is enabled by the technology today. And, and so, you know, hey, we can push our data and information into your environment we can ingest your data and information into our environment and co-create value. That co-creation may happen within thomasnet.com or one of our properties, and or it could be our ability to ingest, validate, and set up data sets that we syndicate into your 
paid procurement platform or whatever the heck that it might be. But it's kind of to your point, Bob, now that the technology is there, we just have this, this really cool opportunity where it, it's going to be far less, that's the word I'm looking for, far less heavy lifting and just the gnashing of teeth over, you know, uh, this is really about whose lawyer is better and negotiating terms and you know, all this kind of stuff. And by the time you're done, you're exhausted. You, you, you know, it's hard to understand whether you got anything out of it to, hey, let's set up the technology and then flip the switch and see what happens, right? Mm -hmm. If you will. And I don't mean to make it um, seem trivial like that. It's not trivial. But I, I think what you and I are discussing, and when I say API technology, by definition, I'm, you know, that didn't exist before the cloud. Right, the, the ability for me to flip this metaphorical switch I'm talking about. It's not like that data just magically goes somewhere. It goes up into cloud-based technology so that you know people can draw down the access to it. And that is just remarkable um, opportunity to now suddenly open up the playing field and to start to create value in all kinds of different, different ways to, to also get past geographies. You know, oftentimes partnerships have been so just simply limited by, boy, this is a company, it's a long ways away, it's a different time zone, or it's a, you know, um, you know, dip, you know the, the, the geography is just too far. You know, I, I just, you know, I, I don't want to have the headaches of, of that kind of stuff. And so, as you can tell, I'm, I'm excited by it, but I was really inspired by, you know, a, a few of your recent posts on this. And I think this idea it sounds kind of buzzy to say terms like co-creation of value. And I sound like I'm, I don't know, you know, sort of a junior VC out there on the pitch circuit. Um, but it's a cliche for a reason. You know, this is a, this is a cliche that's time has come. And I think the reason the time has come is the enabling technologies are, are within our grasp today. Whereas before we could have had these ideas and, and talked about it, but they weren't really available to, let me say, Bob, the average company. Yeah. You know, what you and I are describing is available to most any company today. You know, it, it doesn't have to just be a super advanced company. One other thing I'll just mention too, and you and I've had this conversation mostly off air, if you will. You know, I, I don't know when the book gets written, but I, I, I really hope Larry Ellison is, you know, not that he needs anything, but you look at the role he's played and the innovator he's been and his ability to just keep adapting and innovating in the marketplace. And to your point, boy, not a guy that ever partnered with anybody, at least as I recall, who's now suddenly saying, hey, that no longer works. I've got to adapt to that. I, I don't know that, that the average person realizes what an innovator this guy has been. And you know, there's some kind of rough elements to the culture at Oracle or certainly have been that I think, you know, probably became the cultural calling card for it. But I, I have a lot of, you know, admiration for him and, and understanding. And, you know, to an extent, I've had somewhat of a ringside seat to watch the evolution of that company. And, you know, I don't, I don't know if he has people that promote him in the press, him as an individual versus the company. My guess is he doesn't waste a lot of time on that. Um, but but I do hope he, he gets the appropriate credit for being the innovator that he really is, because it's remarkable to watch um, some of the steps that he's taking, but also, frankly, how long he's been able to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, and Tony, somewhat looking at the guitars on the wall behind you there, you know, thinking about some of those bands, you know, mentioned the Beatles. What were they together? Eight years, nine years, uh, incredibly short period of time for the impact that came out of that. And then the Rolling Stones, right, I think. 
was it uh was it charlie watts passed away recently 50 just recently yep over 50 years doing this at a very high level and and yeah i think larry ellison will stand out as having had that enduring impact and it, it, it's got to be very hard let me mention two quick things tony and then pass it over to you for a final word here i think what was so interesting too about this stuff of the uh co-creation that we're discussing um I, I i know we hear a lot the word co-innovation and i have no problems mm. with that at all i prefer the term co-creation because to me co-innovation is almost like you know let's get some people in a room and we'll work on something and, and you know that might lead to something else co-creation you're doing it right this is yep. we create yep. a thing that can be sort of product or service uh, you know, whatever that might be. So I, I prefer that one. And I think, again, the pace at which things are going today, co-innovation is going to become a subset, a requirement of co-creation, right? That uh, that'll be a piece of it rather than a separate or equal thing. And then the other point, Tony, like what you said, um, one of the reasons that, uh, and I'd love to say I was intelligent enough to know all this when I started Cloud Wars, but I had the idea that we're just at the beginning of this thing, yeah. Not as it was, yeah. but yeah. whatever it was becoming. And, yeah. uh, you know, the, the name like Cloud Wars and Cloud Wars Live, we re rarely talk a lot about the cloud, you know, it, on this podcast. But the thing is, it is a, it is a door kicker opener into yeah. so many possibilities. Um, you know, we mentioned this, that AI has been around for 65 years, but it was only in the last really five years that AI or uh, the cloud became the magic you know delivery system for it yep so now it touches billions of people around the world and a lot of these things so this this sort of warm fuzzy notion of co-creation was more something that you know people on the fringes maybe with a lot of strategy terms in their title would do rather than people that actually did it but i think now yeah. it's going to make this happen it's it's going to be very very real yeah, yeah. And I, I would echo, Bob, your point on, you know, I think for, for many of us who, who you know, are, are either directly involved or, or tangentially involved in, in a lot of these markets where these types of really exciting, you know, technological innovations are happening or this co-creation of value is starting to happen. When you get into the midst of it, you know, you, you oftentimes don't stop to think, holy smokes, this is really kind of revolutionary. And, you know, there's an old cliche, I, I can't remember the exact, you know, but you, you, you never really understand that you were in the midst of a re revolution until it's over and you look back at it. And, and I, you know, it's, I always use the, you know, it's like trying to watch the hands of a clock move. You, you, you know, you, you don't really understand the passing of time and, and how it's happening. I, I really, not to overhype it, but I think we are at the very early stages of just a remarkable time. And I think over time, Bob, and perhaps a topic for, a follow-up conversation is I think, you know, I struggle at times to, to find the right nomenclature to describe not only where we are, but where, where it looks like we're going. And I think as we sort of see this moment of singularity where business and technology, you can't pull them apart anymore, the augmentation of human intellect and capabilities through technology, I, I think we're starting to step into a really fascinating era where, you know, the traditional terminology we use to describe things, you know, is, is going to start to morph perhaps a little bit. Because when you get into this idea of the co-creation of value enabled by technology, again, sounds like a bad B-school mumbo jumbo sentence, 
But the reality of it is, we're going to need generations of workers who understand how to play in on that playing field. You know, what you and I are describing is not a kind of visionary boy somewhere down the road, this might happen. You know, we may colonize Mars. Hey, isn't that a you know, crazy idea? This is happening today. And I think whether it's, you know, our generation of leaders or and or the companies we're running and, and the next generations coming up, you know, I know at our company at Thomas, we're spending a lot of time, you know, kind of, you know, mainstreaming these thoughts and ideas to get people more comfortable with this. We're trying to say, hey, not everybody's a foe. Redefine what a competitor might be. You know, take a look at, at understanding where there could be benefits to aligning ourselves with somebody outside the four walls of our metaphorical building here. And uh, I think it's just, a you know, again, early days, but exciting times. And, and I think as usual, Bob, you were early on that kind of cloud technology may very well be the environment, the, the primordial soup that's going to, you know, create this next generation of life here for a lot of these companies and businesses. Hey, Dr. Frankenstein. Well, yeah, you could uh, you could go down that path. Well, hopefully we don't we won't reanimate the dead. Right. <laughs> uh, although there could be some dead companies we might reanimate. So maybe, I don't know, maybe it's, uh, maybe it's apt, right? Perfect. Well, Tony, that's beautifully said. Uh, great stuff there. I'm glad you shared, too, some of the things, uh, the, those hard-earned works and achievement from ThomasNet, because you guys sit in a remarkable spot where you're able to see things early, uh, dig into them, tying stuff together, and just your own experience with Thomas Ned of the transformation you've undergone there from a what a 125-year-old trade media print publishing organization to a, a global data services company. That, that that's pretty cool, and that that is what is going on these days. It uh, it is a blast. We're having a lot of fun with it. All right, now as we wrap it up, Bob, let me give your listeners just a little bit of advice based on our data. Okay. I'm going to take you through three things very quickly. We talked about the automotive industry. People probably know used cars are going up in value because we can't get the components for many new cars. If you can, I would wait at least six to 12 months to buy your next car. That's just our advice based on availability and what we see in demand and what we think is going to be a further constriction. Now, again, I don't want to bum anybody out. Canned beverages. Now, there's a lot of beverages that can come in a can. Bob, I know certain beverages you enjoy in a can. And, uh, and I, I don't want to shock your listeners, but I've been actually out at establishments and witnessed you enjoying canned beverages before. But that's a topic for a, a, another discussion. Sure. Believe Thanks. it or not, there is a shortage of aluminum for aluminum cans. So we are seeing a supply chain disruption and this could get exacerbated over the next six months for canned beverages. Now, hold on to your seat. This one is probably the worst for the party animals out there. L liquor. Um, if, if you uh, are planning a party and or just want a stockpile, you may want to just make sure that you understand the, the supply chain of your local liquor store or wherever you, uh, you get your, uh, your spirits because here too, not just based on raw ingredients, but here primarily, and this is gonna blow people's minds, we have a massive, massive truck driver shortage in this country. 
It, it is currently at about 65,000 open jobs. They predict it's gonna get as high as 160,000 over the next couple of years. So that last mile, the shipping of distilled spirits from, and as you know, there's state laws and different things. This isn't a simple thing. You can't just pop it into FedEx and send liquor to people to, as much as perhaps you'd like to. So those are the three areas. If you can wait a little while for that new car, I'd, uh, I'd hold off just a little bit. Stockpile your canned beverages. And if you're planning for you know, a party or you just wanna make sure that uh, you know, down the road, you, you wanna have your appropriate distilled spirit, you may wanna just you know, make sure your local liquor store is well-stocked. And not so well-stocked after you leave. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, Tony, those are those are gems. This is news you can use. Well done, exactly. sir. Um, big exactly. Big driving behavior, Tony. Great stuff. Thanks so much. Really great. Fun, fun conversation, Tony. Hey, Bob, great to see you as usual. Continued success, my friend. I look forward to seeing you and your listeners next month. Very good. Thanks, Tony, folks. Thanks to all of you for being with us. This was a fun one. We'll have lots more in the future. Hang in there. You remember those three things that Tony just mentioned. Let's take action and go get them. See you next time.